Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Hello everyone, you're listening to Crainier on 3CR, 855am on your AM dial, streaming online on 3cr.org.au or listening on digital radio. First, I'd like to acknowledge that we're broadcasting from stolen lands. We're broadcasting over the lands of the Kulin Nations, the Wurundjeri and Bunurong people um, of so-called Melbourne. Um, and this land was stolen by white settlers and the str- struggles for decolonization on this land continue. Um, and I acknowledge that I benefit from white settler privilege and the genocide of Indigenous people on this land. Genocide and colonisation are ongoing processes. And I'd like to extend respect to any Indigenous elders or listen, listeners. Um, okay. Would you like to give the warning part? Um, uh, and, uh, first, I was, I'm going to introduce myself again. I'm Iris, and in the studio today, we have Frankie, my co-presenter, and we're joined by... Rouge and Bovac. Hi, everyone. And would you... How is everyone? Going okay today, thanks. It's been a long, long week. (laughs) Really stoked to have these two amazing people here giving their generosity and their time and their words for us. Yeah. And everyone listening in, it's really great. Would you like to tell, like, one interesting thing about yourselves? For our listeners. Yeah, sure. Well, it's a pleasure to be on here today as well with um, you two stellar co-hosts. Um, my name is Bobak. My pronouns are they, theirs. Um, one interesting fact about myself. I'll try not to make it too tangential and somehow tie it into what I'll talk about today, which is, um, yeah, more uh, like insistence with my work and activism on... Um, the importance of non-black POC solidarity and like what that looks like. Also having benefited and continuing to benefit from um, settler colonial privileges, but at once kind of uh, unifying or working to unify some of those struggles that um, many of us face on this land who share the experience of displacement, including refugees and indigenous people alike. Um, my name is Rouge. My pronouns are she, her. I'm a uh, writer, editor, strategist based here. Um, an interesting thing, I am really excited about what this generation is going to do about this whole umbrella term, this pan people of colour um, idea. And obviously, as most great things in this world, it was developed by black writers and activists and um, and civil rights uh, leaders throughout the 20th century and what it means to adopt the term and then also centre Indigenous and black voices in the 21st century manifestation of that movement. Awesome, thank you. 
Um, and also just a warning um, for the show today. So we'll be talking about um, some topics such as like police brutality and negligence, racism, death in custody, state violence, and a particular warning for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander folk listening in that the next hour we'll be talking about a deceased person treated with negligence in police custody and culturally sensitive stories, which may be distressing content. Um We'll go to a song now and then come back and have another chat to our two amazing people joining us in the studio today. Panoply, panorama, panpipe, pansy, aha, pansexual, knowing no boundaries of sex or gender. Sound interesting? Then join Sally on Sundays at noon for Out of the Pan. All those gender questions making you think too hard? Whether it's transgender, bisexual, polyamorous or beyond, we'll throw those questions into the pan and cook up the answers for you. So go on, push that gender envelope only on 3CR 855am digital and 3cr.org.au. Hello, listeners. You're back with us in the studio. This is Iris, and I'm joined with Bobak and Rouge, along with my co-presenter, Frankie. You're listening to 3CR 855 on your AM dial or digitally screening online. Um, We just heard Love Come Down by Noah Slee, and that was a cover of the Evelyn Champagne King's original version. And you can find that track on Wondercore Island's number six mixtape, The Dreamy One, released last year. Um, So today we're talking about um, the Miss Dew case. And for listeners who are just tuning in now, Um, I'm going to just give a brief kind of contextual um, bit of information about the case. And then we've got um, two people, Rouge and Babak, who are going to have a conversation with us about some of the stuff around that. So um, Imaji woman Miss Du died in custody in 2014 after being detained for unpaid fines. Miss Du's family have been fighting for justice since her death and now more than two years later an inquest into the death has condemned police treatment as inhumane. The police commissioner described the police officers involved have failed in their basic obligations to Miss Du regarding her safety, welfare and dignity. However, no actions against the officers have been taken. Um, And CCT footage released late 2016 and the coroner's findings released found that Miss Dew's death was preventable and the police acted unprofessionally and inhumane. Um, And a report from SBS NITV um, said um, Ruth Barson from the Human Rights Law Council said the brutality of Miss Dew's death is inexcusable and there have been a cascading series of failures by police and hospital staff um, during her case. She was treated in cruel and inhumane ways by those who had a duty of care to look after her. She was dismissed, ignored, neglected and denied her basic human rights. So... um, why we've got Rouge and Babak here um, to talk to us about this is that they've um, helped to put together a fundraiser um, called Justice for Miss Jew, 
and um, it's raising money for Miss Jew's family. Um, so I guess I want to start off by talking about um, this idea of negligence in her case um, and what you think about, yeah, if you have any thoughts about that, Rouge, to start off with. I think this case is not um, not separate from a wider and continuous systematic uh, oppression that um, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people face day to day. There is definitely a two-tiered approach of how we apply the legal system to particular sections of the community versus um, people who, who are privileged or who have access to a multitude of um, institutional assistance and also like blind spots as well that help them sort of get away with a lot of things and um, and there's uh, there's no way of seeking retribution for the people on the second tier who are often um, faced with violence and also perhaps legalized violence as well because it's codified within legal systems and there are subsections that allow for this sort of intimidation to be um, perpetrated. Miss Dew is a particular case as well because it shows that if an Aboriginal woman does not pay some fines, she will be incarcerated and her voice will be silenced and denied and uh, her legitimacy and autonomy will be um, denied as well. And... In comparison, uh, day-to-day, pretty much like any non-Aboriginal person, can go in uh, and follow through with unpaid fines for years on end, sometimes people even celebrating how long they've lasted, not paying their fines, which for me makes me very uncomfortable because it's an expression of privilege. And in comparison, Aboriginal people are incarcerated for really minor cases And you see that in Dondale as well, where kids have been incarcerated for really minor cases as well. What does this actually mean? It sort of means that this constant infantilizing and um, degradation continues and that we do not, we like we institutionally and as a nation, do not respect Aboriginal voices, do not see them as um, autonomous. We constantly speak for those voices, and I also understand that two non-Aboriginal people talking about this issue is also speaking for, but I guess, like, we, we're just participating in a fundraiser, so that there's the connection there. Um, but, yeah, and we, and we continue to silence those um, that, that ability to self-actualise and live a free life. And when we're talking about negligence as well, it's important to remember that Miss Jew's case, while exceptional and, and certainly extremely brutal in its own way, is is one moment in a system of moment that permits and encourages and perpetuates systems of negligence and violence that disproportionately affect Indigenous people in this country. And I think it's like so important in this instance that we um, are raising awareness and funds for Miss Jew's family. But alongside that, we also have to remember that there are so many cases throughout this bloody, in a very literal sense, country's history where negligence has been the standard, has been the hallmark of police 
and has been approved and rewarded as well. And promoted yeah. and encouraged. And put into law yeah. and, like, codified, as you said. Yeah. So, like, how how can you dispute something that is, like, logical, objective in and the law? And often the ruling? commentary is like, oh, is it legal? And if it is legal, it is just. And often um, the legalities of it is not just whatsoever. Mm. And, um, and we continue to perpetuate that. But also Miss Dew's family, through the pain and hurt and the significant um, loss have used this to garner and uphold her spirit and um, and the and her significance in their lives in their community and have continued to fight and without that strength without that courage in the face of so much pain we wouldn't really be talking about her because just like any other loss any other Aboriginal person that passes away and continues to pass away in the hands of our violent um, institutions, we yeah we would it would be unheard of because we're just so used to ignoring mm. this. And when we're talking about that level of like codified institutionalized racism in this case, it's really telling that seniority in the police force was um, a marker for that negligence, where like more senior members of the um, the people involved with the police were the ones insisting on that negligence, on Miss Jew being treated inhumanely and, and ignored, whereas the younger members who had less time to kind of absorb and reproduce that institutionalised racism and were, were less senior members of the staff were actually the only ones, or this one in particular, to have any sympathy at any stage and humour the idea that, like, Miss Jew's cries for help would were sincere. Yep, and mm. I think it also goes down to um, there's this notion of how we value particular voices over others, and you know we you know there's been wide research on how ability, class, gender, sexuality, and race plays into that, and we often will. Um, any minoritized or oppressed person expressing the f- uh, the full anguish of their experience or asking for help or speaking about their experience and lived experience is often seen as shrill, over-emotional, mm, hysterical. tainted, hysterical. And that extends to Miss Dew's case as well, where she had a legitimate concern, which often, like, 99% of the time is very true in all of these, um, in cases of minoritised people raising their voice. And through it all, you know, through it all, she's requesting assistance and help. She should have never been uh, locked up in the first place. Mm. But she was, and she requested help. And not only did police personnel ignore it but medical practitioners ignored it Mm -hmm. which shows how much these like structures and the way that we identify power Mm -hmm. and legitimacy permeates through every form of um every every institution or every sector Mm -hmm. of our community Mm -hmm. and places Mm -hmm. that are supposed to provide care like care right Mm -hmm. or justice police Mm -hmm. justice like Mm -hmm. the healthcare system resources Mm -hmm. yeah yeah, totally. Yeah, I was thinking about your points on that, and I, I guess it, it goes to how power works and, and how sometimes this liberal society can obscure how power works and how it functions through institutions. That can have, like, formal anti-discrimination policies, but in terms of everything that makes them up and how power works and 
white and the application yeah yeah and um and also like uh, anti-discrimination policies although they're present are very vague and so it does provide like allow for interpretation and those interpretations often reinforce already established power structures um that yeah that end up in deaths pretty much yeah yeah. Great. Um, we're going to go to a song quickly and then we'll be back to, tra- to chat to Rouge Babak a little bit more. Thanks for listening. Hello, listeners. You're listening to Query Nia on 3CR Community Radio, streaming on 3cr.org.au or on 855am on your AM dial or even podcasted in the future. How exciting. <laughs> um we just heard Naranga by Indigenous performer, singer um, and past member of Black Armband, Emma Donovan. Um, and that track was off her 2009 Naranga EP. Um, she now performs with The Putbacks. Um, if you haven't heard any music by Emma, God, Emma Donovan, look her up. She's really amazing. Um so we've just been having a conversation with Rouge and Babak about Miss Do. Um, and Iris, you had a question about um, community activism and the way that like fundraising can work in um, helping communities and providing solidarity. Um, yeah, so... I guess what else what I've been thinking about is like the potentials of community activism and also like some of the pitfalls of them if we wanted to talk about Yeah. Yeah, um, well, I mean Rouge and I, I remember when we were first asked to um to participate in the fundraiser for Miss Do, um we we had a conversation which like basically revolved around wondering whether our positionality as non-black POC activists was useful or appropriate in a fundraiser that is like reflective of a condition and experience of life in Australia that we do not share and that we profit off of in the same way that all settlers profit off of that um, in Australia. So we kind of like, we we, we went back and forth and we were kind of not a a little bit torn, but I think... What was the best way to approach it mm. and re- approach it respectfully and, like, humble ourselves to the greater cause without centering ourselves, I guess? Exactly. Yeah. And also, like, paying heed to our privileges but making use of that space not to constantly um, kind of make asterisks about why where our positionality was, like... Um, contested or kind of not appropriate, but actually use that position to make a point or to um, channel some of the frustration and challenges that we share with Indigenous Australians as people of colour in Australia. Um, And also my experience as a refugee and statelessness and Mm -hmm. um, that kind of in-between... Um, position. Absolutely. So I think that was a really useful conclusion to come to about kind of making, like, using that opportunity as a um, as a as a moment to um, bring together our similarities and make use of them for the benefit of Miss Jew's family and for the benefit of community awareness, rather than um, 
yeah, kind of cripple ourselves and the opportunities for good that this could offer by focusing on... I think also, uh, you know, that there is a point, like, when someone says, I'm a person of colour, and this is kind of um, going on a bit of a tangent, but you find your voice, and that voice expresses the full gamut of your experiences within a very white dominant culture, and you start to express the disdain and hurt from the microaggressive to the complete violent and there is a point where you like you you're talking about it constantly and then afterwards it settles down and the dust settles and you feel comfortable expressing that and you feel um uh like you know hopefully you find community and you build solidarity and everything like that and after you found your voice and you start expressing your experiences you think okay what is my role in that wider context and you start to realize you know uh like for me for example I was a refugee to Australia from Iraq and I'm a queer person and there's all these other intersections that I belong in and have experienced. But uh, it's about um, affirming your privileges and, and, and recognising them and then being like, what role do I play in that wider um, uh, wider context and wider tapestry of your community? And as a white-passing person of colour and an able-bodied person of colour, I can contribute in a particular way and constantly question how I'm centering Indigenous voices and black voices within my community as well. Um, and obviously I will stuff up because I've been socialised within a particular system, but it's my role to constantly like, constantly be on that journey of um, breaking that apart. Another thing that's, I think, important to remember, because we've both um, been educated and hence institutionalised, mm. and that has a really um, severe effect on the language we have access to and the language we use. And the language we use when we're to talk about um, our experience as people of colour and our activism and the, the structures of oppression facing um, Indigenous and more people of colour in this country, it's almost like... I was reading over the coroner's report uh, earlier today for the Miss Jews case, and I was really struck by how disarming and off-putting and and like vapid the language they used was to describe um, the like uh, the racial charge behind the police's misconduct in this it was like they were completely evading it and using very like high octave convoluted language to effectively kind of disarm and pacify, pacify uh, yeah. any kind of opposition because you don't really know what they're saying yeah. and that's the tactic that is used by police across the world in um, a lot of the Black Lives Matter antagonism and hostilities with police this is something that's like proven quite pervasive as well and so to see it here and to also see that in our own language and the, the language used for our poetry and our art and our activism is something that we all kind of need to be actively unlearning and training and, and very me, aware of. And for me, um, education was pretty much the only avenue where I could emancipate myself. But at yeah, the same time, definitely. I can't um, allow that education to build walls or separate and, um, you know, pretty much like without even knowing, close the door behind me. Mm-hmm. But... Ultimately, it's the language that I use and the language I've been equipped with, and mm. so I have to use it wisely. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Rouge, did you want to read um, a couple of pieces that you brought along to share with us? That would be really great. 
So uh, me and Bobak are going to be performing a few spoken word pieces um, at the Miss Do um, uh, fundraiser, which is on January 22nd from 3 p.m. to 6 p.m. Um, at the Grace Darling. Uh, I just want to talk about the event um, just coming about. Uh, we were both um, approached by Ellie Screen, who um, is involved with Listen, um, who has her um, own band, um, Huntley, and um, is involved in like the music uh, music industry and everything like that. And she was given a position at the Grace Darling to curate some, you know, events, just some music events that were not associated with anything. And uh, when the coroner's report was released, we uh, a few people were discussing how do we um, assist the family and um, continue to give them the funds and resources. So uh, so Ellie somehow found a um, a contact through the Deaths and Custody Watch Committee in Western Australia, who has direct contact with Miss Dew's family and has been helping the um, case and building the case. And so Ellie approached me and Babak and a few other amazing artists like Badosa, Kandere, um, Paul Gori, who's DJing, um, and then also us amongst an amazing lineup. And, um, and yeah, so me and Babak are going to pr- produce some spoken word. Also, me and Babak are very, very... Uh, we've had one of the most hectic weeks of our whole lives, um, especially me. I haven't really slept the last couple of days because I've been at work working 24 hours per day um uh producing a large-scale event so what i thought i would do is instead of reading out my half-baked piece which still needs a lot of work um and my um uh, um and yeah and and like perhaps ruining my whole credibility um i thought that i would (laughs) read some pieces from a nigerian poet um so what i like to do is i like to go on the internet um, wow, what a surprise. And um, and trawl through um, poetry and then order many, many books and then suddenly um, have a million books arrive at my doorstep and it's just like a little bit hectic. But one of the one of these poets I found is um, Ijoma Mebio and um, she's from Nigeria and she uh, one of her um, books is Questions for Ada and there are two pieces that I think spoke speak to this experience but also um, really fill me with a lot of um, creativity and um, and connection and kind of speak to a really um, amazing experience. So Questions for Ada is an amazing book, so you should go out and get it. But I'm going to read two pieces. One is called Survive, and the other one, which I have bookmarked, is called Narratives. And I think that those two phrases sort of speak to um, the Miss, Miss Do's experience. Obviously, I'm not going to connect this writer to this um, cause, Um, because she has her own kind of autonomy and voice. But I think that um, writing can sort of transcend these experiences. So first one is survive. Some women survive by growing claws on their skin, pinching whomever comes, examining them before cutting their claws off to be liquid love. Don't curse them. For when the attacker came, she was liquid first. She has just learnt her lesson. Some women survive by creating walls, big walls guiding their hearts, and you say, let them in. But she has been covered in regrets, crawled on all fours for her salvation. Don't curse them, for when her attacker came, 
There she was, loving. Now, she has built her walls, brick by brick, guarding against parasites. Thank you. Beautiful. And the second piece is narratives. Our mothers, our great grandmothers, all the women whose blood we carry, all of them and none of them, needed to be saved by someone who called them exotic or tries to write their guilt away by researching them. All our mothers have always known the power of sisterhood. You didn't teach them how to use their weapons. Yes. Mm. Thank you so much. <laughs> yes. Um, let's go to a song and then we'll come back and do some more chatting. Yay. We yeah. love chatting. We're good at that. <laughs> <laughs> Hello, everyone. You're back on 3CR Community Radio, 855 AM on your AM dial. Streaming live on 3cr.org.au on digital radio as well. So I'm joined, I'm Iris, and I'm joined in the studio by Frankie, Robuck, and Rouge. And I'd like to have a little discussion about Midsummer. What do we all think? <laughs> and this is coming from my perspective of being involved in a little disruption of Pride Parade last year. I that just... in some ways... I have a lot of criticism of, of, and I wrote an article about some of the, my experiences in it, and in terms of some of the responses from people to hearing a, a critical perspective on some of the things we're talking about in relation to these corporations that were deporting people in relation to, like, police marching in the Pride Parade while they, like, hunt, like all these corporations and institutions that are pinkwashing their, like, oppressive practices anticipating in a march, and I kind of looked at who runs the, who runs Midsummer, and so like John Caldwell is one this is like the boss of Midsummer, or was yeah, who is a boss of a big recruitment firm, a multi like very rich white cis gay man, and these and there's a whole lot of banking executives that are on the board of Midsummer and they have control over Pride March. And, like, are these people represent, like, how can we build, like, a grassroots queer and, you know, with all its divisions um, sort of movement with that, that sort of organisation? And, yeah, so this year I'm looking for alternatives and I'm pretty, like, jaded. But, like, at the same time, Midsummer <laughs> has some great events. Like, there's lots of st- some good stuff that comes out of Midsummer. And it's really good for, like, young queers and everything like that and just feeling a sense of community and visibility and excitement and actually fun. Like, Mm. that being queer is really fun and joyous. And, yeah, I think that that holds a certain value to it as well. But I definitely have, um, yeah, reservations, especially with the Pride March. Um, I was in a predominantly white 
queer conversation and um and some like white queers came out and were like you know um you know i want to march and pride march with the specific organization that i want to be in uh, that i'm involved with or whatever which were non-politically affiliated kind of like benign organizations or whatever and then a couple of other white queers bless them kind of spoke up and talked about the history of the pride march and the corporatization but also the um, those different corporations and how they are involved in um, in really horrific violent acts against predominantly POC and um, and what their role is in using their privilege etc. Um, I said, just think, what would the revolutionary black trans activists of yesteryear and today do and do as they do because we owe everything to them. And then those people stopped having a conversation Aww. and then uh, still participated. So that was really great. Um, queer solidarity. <laughs> well done, everyone. Um, why queer spaces don't have a problem yeah. whatsoever. Mm. Not at all. Besides Hashtag sarcasm. Just being like homonormative, which is kind of like the prevailing assumption that follows Midsummer for good reason. It's whiteness is also like worthy of, of, of interrogation because... Despite some efforts this year, especially to uh, diversify, <laughs> right? The buzzword. Diversity is a white word. Yeah, diversity is a white word, <laughs> as um, that beautiful article stipulated. It's Tanya very telling. Tanya from Rise. It's very, hub. Yep. It's I'm very telling that, like, once more, and this is like has plagued me in my life and activism in so many institutions and companies and organizations where. You're taken on as the image, you're broadcast and advertised, your face is uploaded to a Facebook page, but you're never actually infiltrating the structure of the organization. You're always at the bottom tiers, used for marketing purposes, with your name and face and difference, really like fetishized and And that you should be grateful that they have allowed for or given up a spot. Mm. Which, it, um, but, these, but, but that space is never being given up anywhere in the leadership ranks. It's always at the bottom and it's, you're always dispensable or temporary or fleeting. And, and doing this the, is the hard life work. of being someone freelance is that like you come into these like organizations and like the work you do is kind of used in some way to like associate um, an organization or an, an institution and like better their name and then you're dispensed with. And I think that Midsummer has a lot of challenges in future years with, like, not just um, um, making space, but giving up space mm. in these institutions. Um, and even the, um, what's that, the GLBTQ, um, the, uh, multicultural association that is associated with um, Midsummer that has um, an astonishing proportion of. Greeks and Italians in the organization about like that that centers multicultural queer people uh, instead of refugees instead of indigenous people um, who today in today's world in today's Australia are more representative of the experience of multicultural queerness than perhaps forty or fifty years ago, which is which these institutions almost haven't really caught up with, mm. and that's kind of our responsibility, being younger queers of color, to kind of shake that up and be like. That's not cool anymore. Make space for us by giving up your own privilege and position. I recently was We're approached. Coming for you. <laughs> <laughs> I was recently approached to um to give advice and like strategic advice for a um 
a organization, um, a mainly campaign uh, focused organization. And I was like, oh, so um, what is the makeup of your initial team and what do you want it to look like? And they said, well, obviously, you know, we want to get more indigenous and black voices and refugee voices, etc. And I'm like, okay, and what are you doing to do that? And they're like, well, you know, we'll have different offices like who can take up that spot. And I'm like, you can't create the space and expect people to turn up. Uh, you have to uh, you have to um, build it from the core of the organization out. Mm. You can't just give someone refugee officer or you you know like mm. provide a quota mm. and then still do business as usual and expect it to be effective because ultimately your organization is losing out because you're not actually affecting some of the most disenfranchised individuals in your community. Mm -hmm. You're not creating the best ideas and the best systems um, because you're not allowing for that, those voices. Every, because, any efforts you do make are unsustainable because yeah, they're temporary. And short-term, yeah, yeah. short-term thinking and there's no long-term change. And, you know, we talk about the importance of hashtag diversity <laughs> and, um, <laughs> and, and all of that sort of stuff, but on a very cold and systematic strategic mm. term, let me say that if you don't allow for that, if you don't change the core of your organization, you're going to die. Mm -hmm. The organization will die because you are not tapping into a resource of incredibly effective, articulate, creative people. And a changing world. Who, yeah, that are changing the world. And then what you want to use them as props for your, you know, like vision, you know, the imagery, but then, you know, still kind of loud a reward and, um, and prioritize and also you know, pretty much pay for people who are already highly privileged. And we perpetuate the same structures that we see in wider society. Let's not let's not kid ourselves. I think mm. that queerness is utopia. Mm. Yeah. We still have to work towards our own communities. Definitely. Great. So mm. I think we're coming towards the end of the show, but I just wanted to, again, thank Rijin Babak so much for your generosity and your time. Um, it was really, really mm, great yeah. to have pleasure. your thank voices. Thank you both. Yeah. <laughs> Um, so we, we have. I think we should do some announcements. Yeah. So, um, the first one that we'd like to plug is the Trans Sensational um, exhibition, which is um, January the nineteenth from six thirty to eight thirty p.m. Um, at Black Dot Gallery, thirty three Saxon Street, Brunswick, um, and it's a showcase of. Um, trans and gender diverse indigenous folk um and there's a bunch of really amazing stuff that's going to be there really incredible artists um also at the moment is the woman jacker festival um at footscray community arts center over in footscray um so that's it started on the 14th of january and it goes through to the 21st of january there's a bunch of workshops and panels and music performances and that's really awesome. Everyone should go and check it out. Um, also, a couple of um, the last show that we did on 3CR, um, Iris and I, we had my friend um, Omar Seika come in to read some poetry um, and I'm just like a really huge fan of his work and his first collection has just come out. So oh, wow. I'm just going to like plug that. <laughs> um, you can buy um, 
his book on Cordite Poetry Review online. If you <laughs> if you Google Omar Seka um, and um, look at Cordite Poetry Review, you'll be able to find it. Um, what else have we got, Iris? Coming up on Feb- these wild houses. Mm. Wild these wild houses. houses. Yes. Okay. With houses. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Um, coming up on February seventh. There's a discussion about colouring in a rainbow at Northcote Library, which is part of Darabin Council. And colouring in a rainbow is a is a book on black, queer, and trans perspectives. Indigenous First Nations. Yeah, black is in Indigenous First Nations in like the lands that are known as Australia, otherwise mm. unceded Indigenous lands. And it's it's a free event, but you just have to book online. So that's a really um, there's going to be some really incredible panelists um, talking about the book um, and trans Indigenous stuff. So you should check that out online. Can I mention as well? I'm back to the topic of Midsummer that I was. Asked to curate a queer and trans people of colour stage at an event called Queer Horizons on the 4th of February, which I've taken on, which I've done. And I'd like, I think it's a great um, initiative, of, but as far as the, like, the, the changing makeup of like the queer scene in Melbourne and Australia and the challenges that Midsummer will face in future years, like Cutie Pox stage is te- telling and testifies to this, like, structure of power where it's, like, you have the people in charge who are white and then you have, like, a section who are cordoned off, um, which is, like, a step in the right direction considering the f- a total failure and absence in previous years. But I think... Mm. Still using in, white tools. Yeah, in, in yeah. future years, really, like, the direction it needs to take on is, like, not a cordoned off space within the night, but a whole night, many nights, many people actively involved in the organising and curating mm. of, of events and spaces. Regardless, some beautiful, young um, and emerging queer and trans yeah. people of colour poets will be performing on that night, and I'd encourage you all to come along to Testing Grounds. Thanks, Baba. Yeah. So another like, important announcement that I encourage anyone who can attend is around Invasion Day coming up on January the 26th. It's been a rally... Um, that's Celeste Little, was a, if you know, she's a prominent Aboriginal woman unionist and she's initiated that rally, No Pride and Genocide, um, at at the Vic Parliament on the 26th. Um, also go out there and, um, and like, talk to people when they're celebrating Australia Day in your community, if you're a non-Aboriginal person. Mm. Start talking to people and um, show mm, them yeah. show them pieces by prominent Indigenous people, um, even, like, uh, the speech by Stan Grant. Um, the video that, by Celeste Little last but year. video by yep. Celeste Little, uh, yeah. pieces by Nayuka Gori, Nikia Louie, um, you know, and, and elevate those voices and be like... How and also people from the warriors of the Aboriginal resistance, um, yeah, like just start sharing those pieces in the lead up. I yeah. believe the warriors of Aboriginal resistance have um, asked people to yes. do that in the lead up to Invasion Day. Yeah, in the week. Mm-hmm. Mm. Yeah. So yeah, check out the warriors of Aboriginal resistance Facebook page and links to WordPress that gives you a whole bunch of things you can do. Um. So that's about all of our announcements, and we're going to leave you with 
a reminder about the Miss Jew fundraiser, um, which, oops, which is Sunday, January twenty second at three pm at the Grace Darling Hotel. And we're going to go out to a track that was made about the campaign for justice for Miss Jew um, by one of the members of the Cat Empire and a bunch of Indigenous Indigenous singers. Malia Indigenous Children's Choir. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.